some of the Exodus stories a bit, now that we're pretty much done with Genesis. And um, was I able to get studied today like I wanted to uh, on some of the uh, account going into Egypt. And so I'm actually going to talk about something that basically tonight what I'm trying to do is lay some of the foundation for continuing all this from the story of Egypt. And in order to do that, I'm going to tell you uh, a little bit about, I'm going to talk about Daniel chapter 1. And what that has, uh, you may be wondering what that has to do with Genesis or Exodus. Um, but uh, I'm going to try to lay some of the groundwork tonight as far as how to think rightly about some of these things that were happening and taking place, specifically specifically in the last chapters of Genesis and the first part of Exodus as well. Um, but before we go to that, I have a question. How important are ideas? Very? Slightly? Sort of? Nietzsche. Are you familiar with the name? Philosopher, German philosopher from the 18th century. Um, is known as the man who boldly predicted the death of God. I think that's probably a little inaccurate. I think he merely, I think it was more the idea of he saw what was coming as as uh, Western civilization was moving away from a moral compass, essentially. And Nietzsche predicted that the following century would be the bloodiest in human history. And he was correct. The 1900s were the bloodiest century in human history. Uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, a Russian uh, philosopher and writer, successfully predicted the communist regime about 50 years before it happened. Because he saw what was coming down the road successfully predicted what was going to happen based on what people were thinking at the time and the direction that that uh, that people's ideologies was moving. So we would say, I think, that the way you think matters about something. The other thing that goes along uh, that's, that's important about that is when you look at worldviews, now all of you have been brought up with a worldview. In other words, uh, essentially a worldview is just a way of looking at things. And our view, our worldview comes in the shape of a story. We have our Bible. And in our Bible, in the book of Genesis, it talks about that there was chaos. And out of that chaos, God came and he spoke. And as God spoke truth, essentially, into the chaos, things began to develop and form. The Egyptians had their own story of chaos and how order was created. The Babylonians, who we're going to look at some today, also had their own story of chaos and order and how the world was formed and developed. And basically what happens is, out of those early stories that form, you get the foundation for everything else that rests on those beliefs. So in other words, we have the book of Genesis. If you think about how much of the rest of scripture is invalid if you can take away the book of Genesis. Our definition for morality, our need for salvation, the fact that God created us and that God created us as individuals that have the image of God within us, value, human life, essentially. All of those things are based and built on are based on Genesis and are those kind of themes are kind of built on in the rest of the book of the Bible. This is a uh, a, uh, a drawing that was done about a hundred years ago of Babylon as it was being built. Um, so this is the great temple of Marduk, I believe, right here. And over here is the Ishtar Gate, which you can just see slightly there. We're actually going to talk about that a little more later on um, in the evening if we get to that. So in Daniel chapter 1, which is, um, I'll, I think I'll turn there now. Um, you can turn there if you wish or go there, um, but we're not actually going to spend a lot of time just reading through that. But that's essentially where we're going to be, what we're going to be talking about tonight. So I'll give you a little bit of historical context as far as what was going on. Um, right here in the book of Daniel, and then we'll, yeah, we'll go on from there. So Daniel chapter 1 is around 607 B.C., about 600 years before the time of Christ. This is called, this is what's known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So Babylon has been inhabited uh, for centuries before the time of Daniel. Uh, if you read about the plain of Shinar and uh, Nimrod, the early parts of Genesis following the flood, that's sort of the area that this is happening on. This is, this is Iraqi area now. Um, 
And uh, this, this city of Babylon has been inhabited for hundreds and hundreds of years before Daniel ever comes on the scene. Um, there you have kind of like these little dynasties, starting with guys like uh, the Rosetta Stone. I forget his name now. With Hammurabi, thank you. That's what it is. Hammurabi was one of the early, early uh, kings in the Babylonian Empire. But you have these empires that kind of go through segments. So you'd have like a number of kings, you know, a king and his descendants for maybe four or five, six generations. You'd have that dynasty, and then the thing would kind of fall off, and you'd have another king that would come in. For a while, the Assyrians were in charge of Babylon, and when you get to the time of Daniel, the thing is really starting to get as big as it's ever going to get. So you have King Nebuchadnezzar which we know in the Bible is Nebuchadnezzar. He's actually Nebuchadnezzar II. His father, a Chaldean, uh, essentially, so you have, uh, let me see if I get my facts straight here. It doesn't really matter that much, I suppose, but it's interesting to me because I like history. So you have Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar. He was king in Babylon, and his brother was king over, his brother's name, Ashurbanipal, I believe. His brother is king over in Assyria at Nineveh. And the two of them essentially have this fight going on. Egypt gets involved, and they, they have these battles back and forth. The Battle of Carchemish is something that happened as a result of that war. And essentially, Nebuchadnezzar comes out on top. The Assyrian Empire falls, which is why the northern kingdom of Israel, who, was, who fell earlier, is taken by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah, by the time they fall, Babylon is now in charge because Assyria has been defeated. And Nebuchadnezzar, as king, is sort of coming in on the heels of his father. All the territory is now under his realm, and he's building this massive empire. The city of Babylon, in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, is somewhere around 2,200 acres. It's a huge city. Um, I don't have all of the details, but basically, that's essentially where we find ourselves in the book of Daniel. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar just coming to power, he's building up his empire, King uh, Jehoiakim, I believe it is. Yes, Jehoiakim becomes king in Babylon. So basically Babylon comes and attacks Judah. They <coughs> capture Jerusalem. They set up, they take away the king. They set up the king's brother, Jehoiakim. He's there in Jerusalem. He's sort of a tribute. Uh, paying, he's paying tribute to the king of Babylon. After about three years, he rebels, and Babylon comes again. And that is when Judah falls for good. Jerusalem is utterly destroyed. Most of the Jews are taken away. Uh, that's where Daniel and his friends find themselves uh, being moved out of Jerusalem. But one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar was known for is he would conquer a city, he would conquer a territory, he would conquer a nation, and he would take those people and move them to Babylon. Now the Assyrians did essentially the same thing. What the Assyrians would do in the northern kingdom, for example, is they would take away most of the Israelites and just kind of spread them out across the empire. You'd send a section of them there and there and there. What you're doing is you're assimilating them into your own people. What that does is it keeps them from banding together and trying to start an uprising again. And then they would take their own people from here again, various parts of the empire, and they would just move them in. And those people would come and live in the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah, what Nebuchadnezzar did is he essentially took everybody out. It says that he left basically the barest poor of the land. None of you probably would have stayed. You're young, you're healthy, you know what you're doing. He would have taken you off to Babylon. Or killed you, <coughs> likely enough. So Nebuchadnezzar comes, the Chaldeans come, they attack Jerusalem, they destroy it, the place is in utter ruins. Now think about it. What is the earliest conflict that you can remember in your lifetimes? So most of you were born, what, your mid-20s? You remember when the Iraqi war started? Anybody? You remember that, some of you? Further back. And you know, they can go further back than that. The United States has been at war most of your lives, I would say. So I was born in 1989, um, which gets us a few a few conflicts before, before most of you all were born. Um, so question, what happens when you win? Talking about ideas. What happens when a nation, when two nations are, in, are at war and one of them wins? What happens? Going back to 1989, so I was born in uh, the middle of April in 1989. A few months after I was born, there was a conflict, that was hardly even a 
conflict, I suppose. Um, an event happened called the Tobruk Encounter. Do you remember, Darlene? You're older than me. You were four at the time, I think. Five. Sorry. Like <laughs> 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 um, 1996. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. <clears throat> I thought you were older than my wife. So the Tobruk encounter happened in the Mediterranean Sea when a uh, U.S. aircraft carrier was going encroaching on what Libya claimed to be its territorial waters in the Mediterranean Sea. Libya sent up two MiG fighters, and the United States Navy shot them down. And that was the Tobruk encounter. That was in 1989. Also in 1989, or was it 1990? I'm getting the facts straight here. No, also in 19, uh, 1989, the United States helped Panama overthrow their dictator and form a new government. In 1990, the U.S. invaded Iraq with, I think, 12 other countries in what was known as Operation Enduring Freedom, I believe. Desert Storm, sorry. It was Desert Storm, fought in the early 90s, fought against Saddam Hussein. And since that time, in my lifetime, the United States, by some counts, has been involved in at least 18 acts of war. Now, some of those were skirmishes. Others, like the war in Afghanistan, was a war that lasted literally for about 20 years. None of those wars were fought on U.S. territory or on U.S. national territory. And none of them were even close to our borders. Why does the U.S. enter international conflict on a regular basis? Any ideas? Why do you think? We do it all the time. Why? Money? Ideas? Um, I don't know, maybe, I know before, maybe not as much now, we might have been more of a superpower before. Um, and maybe, yeah, just kind of controlling, like, yeah, putting yourself out there and having a hand in, like, you know, for example, the one with, I'm not sure which one was it, Ukraine or, no, Afghanistan, where we, it wasn't just us, it was a couple other countries. Mm -hmm. um, something like that, you know, that was our interest. We were putting our interests out there and kind of trying to control maybe kind of how the world was going in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, That's a good answer. Yeah. Anybody want to add to that? Let's take Iraq. The United States invaded Iraq in, in Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003. So 19 years ago. George Bush was able to convince the rest of the world, at least his allies, that Iraq was um, harboring weapons of mass destruction. I remember when this was going on, reading about this when I was a kid. And I think he probably actually believed that there were weapons of mass destruction being uh, manufactured in Iraq. And that was the reason they went in and attacked. What else was happening over that time is that you can, you can think what you will of this. Iraq, which is coincidentally enough home to the ruins of Babylon, has 6,000 years of religious and cultural history. The United States, a nation that was about 230 years old at the time when they invaded Iraq, a nation that was built upon ideas that were only about 300 years old, as far as democracy, decided that they're going to go into Iraq and take these people and make them a democracy. Think it's gonna work? It didn't. Now, we could say probably correctly that, that uh, things are better in Iraq than they used to be, and in some ways they are.
basically what happens when a nation wins is this. You look at it, you look at the way that the United States has flexed its muscle around the world over the last, well, basically since the War of 1812. Why? Part of the reason I say we, we as a nation, do that sort of thing is because, one, I suppose you could say that we're protecting our interests overseas and in other countries. The other reason, which is especially true in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, is that we actually believe that the way we do things is better than the way they do things. And we're going to take our way of doing things, and we're going to, I'll use the word, force you to do it that way, so that you can see how wonderful it is. And in some places that works, and in some places that very much does not work. Um, but that's one, of the, that's one of the things that happen when you win. Not only do you actually get to increase land mass or natural resources or things like that, but really what you're saying is, my way of doing things is better than your way of doing things, and now because I won, you're going to do things my way. That's what we do here in our world today, and that's very much what happened back in the world of Daniel. Let's go back a bit further than my lifetime. The Berlin Wall. So I was born, you know, I'm a really old guy because most of you have no idea of living during the time of the Berlin Wall. I don't either because I was pretty young when it came down. Berlin Wall construction began in uh, 1961. Berlin Wall came down in November of 1989, about six months after I was born. A few months before I was born, the last person that was killed trying to escape East Germany died in an attempted crossing. This young man, if I remember correctly, was shot as he was trying to cross over no man's land. Berlin Wall stood for almost 30 years. The Cold War itself lasted somewhat longer than that. Um, we would say that historians say the Cold War lasted from 1947 to 1991, I believe it was, when the Soviet Union collapsed. The Cold War was not about land. It was not about natural resources. It was not about money. The Cold War was about ideas. Are ideas powerful? Who cares what the United States does if you live in Russia? And vice versa. Who in the United States cares what the Soviet Union does if you live in the state of Virginia? Doesn't affect you, essentially. There are thousands of miles. There's two oceans separating you, one on either side of the United States continent. Why did we care? Well, we didn't care. And for about 50 years, you had two nations, nuclear giants, both of them with enough nuclear capability to end life on Earth, pointing fingers at each other, having encounter after encounter, fighting proxy wars in places like Libya and in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and in North Korea and Vietnam. Why? Because we believed two different things. And the reason the Cold War happened is because the Soviet Union said, our way is better. And because the Allies said, no, our way is better. The space race happened because communism and democracy existed together. That's literally what was going on. We could not stand it. The United States could not stand it when the Russians were the first people put an object into orbit. The race was to the moon. We went all the way to the moon 50 years ago. With less technology than you carry around in your pocket. You know who cares about, you know who cares about going to the moon now? Almost nobody. You know why? Because the Russians aren't trying to do it. That's essentially what drove us there. And, not, and that's not all of what drove us there, but that was, that's what created the sense of urgency. And literally, the generation of the 1960s thought we're going to the moon, after that it's going to be Mars, and we're going to keep going, and we're going to keep going, and we're going to keep going. And suddenly the whole thing died off. Because we won. And the urgency wasn't there anymore. The Cold War was generally fought over ideas. So why does the United States, well, I answered that question already, why do we enter global conflict on a regular basis? 
It's in part is to impose our worldview on other cultures and societies. Now, I, I say that to say this. I think that gives us a glimpse into what Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans were doing when it came to the peoples they conquered. And it wasn't just them, because we tend to divorce politics and religion. They didn't. Everything was very much tied together. And so when you had a nation, and literally this happened uh, in Jerusalem. I was just reading about this. Um, the Jerusalem king went to Damascus, saw the altar that the, uh, that the Assyrians were worshiping at, gets the whole thing drawn up, sends it back to Jerusalem and says, I want you to build me an altar like this. And literally his reasoning was, the God of the Assyrians is greater. Obviously, it has to be true because they're taking everybody else over. Let's worship him so that things will go better for us. That was the idea. So he has this whole altar built back in Jerusalem. He goes back and starts serving the, uh, the God of the Assyrians at the temple in Jerusalem. Because, in his mind, if their God is greater, then I need to serve him so that I can be blessed as well. When Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans took over Jerusalem, the pagan mindset would have been the gods of Jerusalem were not able to hold off the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. That's what they were thinking. Babylon. One of the earliest civilizations. One of the earliest civilizations in human history. It's the center of a lot of false religion. They, like Egypt, had a very complicated religious system. Very sophisticated, I should say. It's also the center of astrology and magic wisdom. So Babylon, God raises up Babylon to act as Israel's judge. And here's the question. What's going to happen when Israel, the nation of Israel, this place that God has created in the Middle East to show who he is to the nations, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to their story? Remember, their story is God called Abraham. We are children of Abraham. We are to be God's priests to the world. What's going to happen to their story when people with another story come and take them over? Whose story is going to be paramount after that? Babylon was so sophisticated, especially in their religious system, they literally had the ability to wipe Judaism off the face of the earth. And here's why. Let's look at the command here in Daniel chapter 1. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the, of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and who they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Basically what the king of, Jude, what the king of uh, Babylon was saying is, we're going to take the best of what Judah has to offer. Give me the brightest minds, People that can, people that know how to speak, people that can learn, people that can be well educated. We're going to take them, we're going to bring them here, and we are literally going to run them through a three-year indoctrination program. And when they come out of the other end, they are going to be Chaldeans, not Hebrews. What happens to a society when you take their best and brightest young people and you change the way they think? You've effectively changed society. It's exactly what the king of Nebuch what King Nebuchadnezzar had in mind. We're going to take these Hebrews and we're going to make them like us. Forget their story. Forget their stories about God. Forget their stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Forget their stories about God bringing them through the through the wilderness into the land of Canaan. Forget all of that. We're going to teach them our story. And our story is what they're going to learn. And our story is what they're going to believe. Our story is what they're going to teach their people. There's a lot more happening than just Judah gets carried off into Babylon. This has the ability to wipe Judah, to wipe Judaism off the face of the earth. We don't know much about 
these four young guys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as we know them, likely in their mid-teens. They saw their city ransacked, destroyed by the Chaldeans. It's very likely they watched their families be killed. They had nothing left to go back to. They saw the temple be destroyed. Their families are gone. Judaism is gone. They have nothing left to go back to. Then they walk about 2,700 miles through the wilderness to a new city. And I wish I had... Let me try this again. Actually, well, I, can just, uh, I can just show you here on my computer. I'm going to show you something. see this see this well at all or not I'll show you right here so this is the ziggurat of, of Marduk here this is the Ishtar gate see that down on the bottom there I pointed it out to you earlier I just want I show you this for uh, for scale you see the Ishtar gate there on the, on the bottom side now let me show you let me show you the uh, Show you what that thing looks like close up. Here we go. Y'all see that? That's what that gate looks like close up. Now, to give you a sense of scale, it's a it's a two-tiered gate. You see the front tier? That thing's about. 75 feet wide and 50 feet tall. That's the lowest tier. The upper tier behind it, this second one, you're talking more like 75 feet high. If you think of standing in front of something 75 feet high, that's the gate, that's the eighth gate that you walk through when you're going to the city. Now you take that scale and think about how big that ziggurat is behind it and the first picture that I showed you. That's what Daniel and his friends walked into when they come into Babylon. Now you think about it, they go from Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem's built on a hill. There's, you know, a great big marvelous temple there and all of that. And that all just got destroyed. You're leaving everything behind. Nothing's left to go back to in, in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem anymore. As far as we know, none of them ever went back there again. They're spending the rest of their lives, and Daniel lived to be quite an old man, in the city of Babylon. You come through that gate the gate, the Ishtar gate, and on that gate you see things like uh, like a winged dragon that represents the god Marduk. Then you see a bull, and that represents the god represents the god Ered, I believe. And then you see the uh, the symbol for Ishtar, who's the goddess of fertility. Those weren't there by accident. That was all part of the Babylonian religious ideological system. When you come through these gates, these massive gates, you, you think about going up to this humongous city where the walls are like 75 feet high and 20 feet thick. And you go through these gates, and you go through the first gate, you start coming into the city, you go through six more gates, and then you see this massive blue, it was literally a brilliant blue gate with all of these depictions of the gods over top of the gate. And you walk in and you see this humongous temple in front of you. You could not help but wonder do they have something that we don't? Because obviously they're succeeding and we're not. They're doing something right that we're not doing. Is their story really more powerful than our story? We're really, where was God when we needed him? So you have everything designed to press upon you the wonder and the splendor and the majesty of the Babylonian system. This is our religion. This is what works. And actually, every year they would have this procession um, where the king would come through the Ishtar gate. And uh, I think I told you last time how that in the Egyptian religious system, uh, the whole thing was supposedly dependent upon Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh's job to keep the gods happy so that everything would work the way it was supposed to. Well, the Babylonians had a similar, similar procession where 
every year the king would come in through the gate and they would have this long procession down like this half mile of paved street and they would be uh, making this great uh, feast of Marduk and where the king would, you know, basically, he would supposedly like confess his sins before Marduk and say, okay, this is the way I was a lousy, this is, these are all the ways, these are the ten ways that I failed last year in, in not keeping order and peace like I should have and all of this stuff just to keep Marduk happy because Marduk was the god that was bringing order into chaos. And you come through all of that and you see their festivals and you see they have this entire system built around this magnificent city. And then you bring these young teenagers in here who have nothing to go back to. And you say, you see all of this? You're the brightest and best of what Judah has to offer. We need you. Why don't you come? Come to our schools. We'll teach you everything you need to know. And you can live in the palace and advise the king. Sound good? Babylon. Well, let's, let's, let's move on here. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Four young Hebrew boys, four Hebrew names. Babylonians say, well, we can't be having that, and they change their names. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bell, the god Bell, protects his life. See what they're doing? You don't belong to God anymore. You belong to us. Next, the way the rest of the chapter is played out is essentially a cold war for Daniel and his three friends. Because everything that happens after this point in chapter 1 is a battle of ideas. The ideological conflict that's going on. And the question is, who's going to win? Babylon or God? Here's a question. Who wins the battle of worldviews? So you have your worldview that you were brought up with. You have the stories that you believe, that you were taught, that we read in our that we read in our Bibles. The world has a different story. Right? So do you influence the world more, or does the world influence you more? You understand the question? Who is winning the battle for you? Is your story influencing the world, or is the world's story influencing your story? Who is winning the battle of worldviews in your life? We could say, well, as a culture, maybe we're winning, maybe we're not. But I'm not really concerned about a cultural, our cultural story that much as I am about your specific personal experience. When it comes to the decisions you make on a day-to-day -day basis, are you buying into the world's story? Or is your story dictating what you do? I think the answer to that is this. Whichever worldview is more grounded is the one that's going to win. Next question. In what worldview should I be grounded and established? So who's to say that Buddhism, or Islam, or Hinduism, or Judaism, or you name it, is of any less benefit and value than our story. Because they all have stories too. And they all are, are attempting to do the same thing that Christianity is in the sense of trying to answer the questions of life. Try to make sense out of what's going on. <clears throat> so who gets to win the battle of influential worldviews in your life? So think, so just quietly in your mind, say your name. 
Be able to do that? Okay, take that person, which is you, obviously, but I want you to, to think about yourself here uh, in a little bit of a more, little bit more detached way. God has made it clear that he has a plan for you. Every one of you talked about this last time. He saw you in the womb. He made you. He formed you. And he knows the plans that he has for you. Specifically. Do you ever think about it that Satan also has plans for you? He does. He knows exactly what he'd like to do with you. And you have this conflict going on in your life from the moment you were born until this day of God holding you and Satan desiring to have you. So you have this conflict going on. God's story or the world's story. Both of them are pulling at you and wanting to take you in a certain direction. How do we contend with that? One of the things that we've tended to do in our culture is build fences, right? We like to build fences. How well does that work? Tolkien wrote, the whole wide world is about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. And that's true, because the story of the world is pervasive. And it doesn't need all of you right now. It's happy with whatever you're willing to give. Carl Jung also wrote that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. And I think that's also true. We are what's the right way to say this? In some ways, we're possessed by ideology. And what I mean by that is this. You think about our Anabaptist forefathers going to the stake for what they believed. They burned alive because something had a hold of them that they would die for. They did not have those ideas on their own. They were held by them. First John 2.16 for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So John tells us that we are not to love the world. Fair enough. How do we not love the world when we're constantly inviting it into our lives? The world has views on wealth, beauty, entertainment. love, happiness. Back to the story of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Daniel purposed in his heart. Okay, so I'm going to write a couple of these words up here. So I'll have them up on the screen. Daniel purposed. So the be uh, purpose. Let's just do this. So that is the Hebrew word sum. Looks like some, but it's got a Hebrew word sum, which means to set, direct, ordain, set in place, fix, resolve. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Alright? Sorry. Resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Now the word heart here in, in Hebrew is the word lebe, which is which looks something like that. It's got a number of definitions which most Hebrew words do. It means the inner man, the mind, will, heart, understanding, conscience. But here's the real definition that I want to get at. The seed of moral character, appetites, desires, emotions, passion, and courage. Think about it this way. Daniel was not going to defile himself with the king's meat. Actually, that's the wrong way to look at it. 
Daniel purposed in his heart. His <laughs> Daniel purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile himself. Think about it. You got a kid who's 15, 16, 17. We don't know exactly how old he was, and he had one thing figured out in life: I am not going to defile myself. Your family has been slaughtered. You have nothing left to go back to. You're in a strange country. And the king says, I'm going to take you and treat you better than anybody else of the captives. And I want you to come live at the palace and learn the ways of Babylon. Now, we purpose our hearts to lots of things, to lots of things, don't we? We decide, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. But then when you're actually faced with a situation, you kind of have to decide, okay, is this really a hill that I'm worth dying on or isn't it? Right? Because we can purpose all day long, but when we're actually faced with something right in front of us, we waffle a bit. So if you were going to choose a hill to die on, would it be eating the king's meat and drinking the king's wine? No? You could say, well, it was probably offered to idols. Yeah, that's probably true. You could say that, well, it's not kosher. Yeah, that's probably also true. I don't know exactly how Hebrew thought was at the time of Daniel, but I know that a few, well, I shouldn't say, by the time of Christ, at least, or shortly after the time of Christ, which I, I suppose in all fairness was a bit 700 years after this, um, they considered it fairly acceptable for you to, uh, in the name of political expedience, break the law of Moses. In other words, God had commanded them, but I don't want you to cut the corners of your beard. All right. Well, if you could be a Roman senator and uh, speak for the Jewish people, but you had, to have, you had to have your beard shaved, well, that was okay, because essentially the end justified the means. Um, does that make sense? They were willing to make concessions if it benefited them as a whole. And we could certainly say that this is probably one of those cases. Just eat the stupid meat and drink the wine. Who cares? You're going to have far more ability to influence the Jewish people as a whole for good in the king's palace than dead because you didn't eat the king's meat. So there's plenty of reason for Daniel to say, big deal. Why? not just eat the meat and keep your mouth shut. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Another thing about that word heart, live, is that it also means the seat of desire or the seat of appetite. What does that mean? It means that Daniel didn't just care about what he did. He cared about what he desired. Does that make sense? Because there's things that you... Okay, so think about this in a dieting sense. I desire to eat a Snickers bar, but I choose not to because I don't want to... Whatever. Make sense? Daniel, wasn't just, Daniel was not just concerned about choosing to do the right thing or not to do the wrong thing. He was concerned about what he was desiring as well. Now here's the crux of the situation. Food and wine were not necessarily the issue at stake. It's what the food and wine represented. Here's what I mean by that. And here is the, here is the, uh, here's the principle of it, of it. You cannot consume the world's world. You cannot, how should I say this rightly? You don't get to consume the world's ideology without some of it entering you and consuming you. I heard a, a, uh, a Jewish priest, a Jewish uh, rabbi say something like this. Uh, he was talking about a, a Catholic friend that had passed away, and they were having the funeral at, at the uh, Catholic church, and he didn't go. And the reason he didn't go He's like, I don't have a problem with the Catholic funeral and all of that. The reason he didn't go is because these were his words. You can't go into the Catholic Church. You cannot enter into the Catholic Church 
without some of the church entering into you. Because that church represents the belief system that is contrary to his own. Basically what he was saying is, it's not neutral. You don't get to dabble in it without some of it dabbling with you. Does that make sense? And what Daniel, where, where Daniel was really, really the food and wine didn't really mean anything. It, that wasn't the issue was, that was at stake here. The issue was, if I partake of Babylon's way of life, there's no convenient stopping point. I cannot, I cannot take some of that food and wine into my body without some of Babylon entering into me as well. And that is the line that Daniel had said, I'm not going to defile myself. That is what I mean. When I ask about the power of ideas. That's what I mean when I ask the question, how can we expect the world not to influence us when we're taking it in all the time? What you turn to for entertainment, what we turn to for entertainment, is it the world's entertainment? Because if it is, it's also entering into us. Or we turn to all sorts of things. So what happened to Daniel as a result of this? Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear the Lord, I fear my Lord the King, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then you shall make me endanger my head to the king. That's a nice way of saying the king's going to cut my head off. So Daniel, basically, Daniel and his friends set up a 10-day, a 10-day uh, test. You give us essentially healthy food and water, and you feed everybody else the stuff you were planning to feed them. And at the end of 10 days, let's see what happens. At the end of 10 days, the eunuch comes back to check everybody out and finds that Daniel and his friends are fairer and fatter than everyone else, which we might not consider a compliment, but I suppose they did in their day, which is actually contrary to what would normally happen. If you go on a water and healthy foods diet for 10 days, you generally look skinner, skinnier, right? We hope. And then if you got your buddy over there wine bibbing, or at least drinking significant portions of Mountain Dew and eating pizza for the same amount of time, he's going to be the one that looks a little more gelatinous at the end of 10 days. And here we find the opposite effect being true, which is a miracle. What happened to Daniel as a result of him saying, no? That's a line I'm not willing to cross, and I don't care what you do to me. I'm not doing that. His influence was increased, not diminished. You would think the opposite would be true. You would think that he would have lost respect, or that he would have lost the respect of those who were in charge. That's not the case. He got to happen to the world instead of the world happening to him because he said, no, I'm not doing that. That's the question that we face. I face it. And I don't always do very well with it. How much of the world are we buying? How much of the world do we take in thinking doesn't matter? Big deal. And yet, we don't enter the world system without some of it entering into us. And John said, I want you to be in the world, but I don't want you to be like them. So who wins the battle of worldviews in our lives? Practically speaking, it's whoever I decide is going to win. Martin Luther wrote, what a man loves that is his God. If you want to know who your God is, think about the past week and who you spent the most time with. And what you spent the most time doing. And where you went with things like your free time, 
on your finances, on your thoughts. The good news is that we get to choose, and you get to pick what you take in, and what you listen to, and what you read, and what you watch. But it's not easy, because we have a lot of opportunities to take in the world's way of thinking. They know it too. And I'm pretty sure if he can do it, we can too. Finishing up Daniel chapter 1. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill and all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said that he should bring them in, three years, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and found, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in all manners of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel continued even the first year of King Cyrus. Sometimes we think it's impossible to stand. And sometimes we think that little things don't matter. Nebuchadnezzar the second. Did you know you might see him in heaven someday? He's one of the only non-Jews to have authored part of the Bible. You might. Because a teenager said no. Decisions have consequences. They can have some really good ones. We choose the right thing. Thank you. You're dismissed.